This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so thank you for asking me to give a talk here today. And what we're celebrating today is the full moon of Wesak or Vaishaka. Wesak is just the fourth month, the fourth lunar month of the year. So we're celebrating events that took place, as far as best we know, in the fourth full moon of the year, over 2,500 years ago. We'd, and this year, interestingly, we've had a super moon. So I don't know how many of you saw the moon last night or the night before, but it was pretty spectacular. It's the closest the moon has been to the Earth for, I can't remember, can anybody remember how long? A long time, the capital letters. And um, it's quite spectacular when that happens. There was one a year or two ago as well, a super moon, and I happened to be in Scotland at the time, and it was quite spectacular. There is something, the moon is such a powerful symbol, isn't it? It has such kind of... You know, the rising moon of the mind, the whole kind of the symbolism of the moon. So hopefully this year we'll have a super Wesak as well to go with the super moon that was in the sky last night. It's sometimes also called the Buddha Jayanti, the victory of the Buddha. So the Buddha's victory over Mara, the Buddha's victory over Sangsara, let's say. The Buddha's victory of moving into enlightenment from the unenlightened state. So some Buddhist traditions celebrate three separate things on their Wesak celebrations. They celebrate the birth of the Buddha, the Buddha's enlightenment, and the Buddha's Parinirvana, or death. But in the Triratna community, we follow the more Mahayana approach. And today, on this filming of May, we're celebrating the Buddha's enlightenment. We have other festival days that celebrate his, uh, his death. And we have celebrations around the other jewels of Buddhism, the Buddhist teaching and the community. And sometimes we celebrate the Buddha's birth. We used to do it a lot more, actually. Some of you might recall that we used to have three days in April. We the Buddha's birthday, uh, WBO day, as it was then, and FWBO day always came together and we celebrated them usually over a weekend. I'm kind of sad that we don't do that anymore. I mean, partly I like a fiesta of any description myself, so... I always think it's good to come together in, on festival days and really celebrate. So today we're celebrating the Buddha's Enlightenment. So it's a pretty special celebration. It's the kind of celebration that marks um, the start of our tradition, that marks the start of the Buddhist tradition, the Buddhist community. And Sangharakshita is somewhere talking of early Buddhist artistic depictions of the celebration of enlightenment, he says, they're obviously celebrating an event of overwhelming cosmic importance. So he says you can see in some of the paintings and even sculptures that they were experiencing great joy and wonder, even awe. So today is, in the true and real sense of the word, an awesome festival. We're not only celebrating something that's happened in the past, we're celebrating something which is still hugely relevant to every one of us sitting in this room and I would say relevant to the world in general. So we're rejoicing in the emergence of a Buddha in the world. 
we're rejoicing that, so to speak, Siddhartha died and a Buddha was born. So we're celebrating that. Now, I'd like to refer here to the title that I was given to talk about today. Kulajalani asked me if I would talk about spiritual rebirth and enlightenment. So this refers to the Tri Ratna system of practice, system of training, even you could say the Tri Ratna model of the spiritual life. So not just in terms of meditation practice, and I'm sure many of, most of you probably know this quite well, but if you have patience with my repetition, just to give the context of that. Um, many years ago in the 70s, mid late 70s, Sangha actually gave a talk called A System of Practice in which he outlined different stages of the spiritual path. He connected them with different meditation practices and he connected them with different stages in one's involvement in our community. That was a very long time ago and recently, over maybe the last two years or so, that system of training has been being revitalised all through our community worldwide. And that's partly at Sangharaksha's request and encouragement and partly because it started to become obvious that it was a useful uh, way of looking at the spiritual life. So just very briefly to remind you, those stages or those principles, if you like, that any spiritual life, to be a full and complete and integral spiritual life, must contain are the principles of integration, positive emotion, spiritual death and spiritual rebirth. There are other systems that you can put on top of that and they're all very interesting. And actually, I gave a talk here last year on the system of training. I don't know if any of you actually remember it. It was a whistle-stop tour. I spoke so fast, even I couldn't understand myself at times. And we covered the whole thing with flip charts. And it was recorded, I think. So if anybody's interested in hearing a bit more about that, I think it gave quite a thorough look at the system of training. Anyway... They're the four stages, or as I say, perhaps better to think of them as four principles that anyone leading the spiritual life within the Tree Ratna community would hope to find a way of evolving, of working with those principles in every practice that they do and in every part of their life. So it's very complete, very full, very interesting and even quite exciting. So today we're celebrating spiritual rebirth. And in a way you could say we're celebrating the spiritual rebirth par excellence. The Buddha, the Buddha's spiritual awakening. The Buddha is the awakened. That's what Buddha means. It means the awakened. So today, we have a really wonderful opportunity to develop our devotion and faith in the Buddha's awakening. But it's also an opportunity to look at our own lives and practice. Any of these festivals are kind of twofold in a way. They're looking at whatever we are celebrating, but they're also an exhortation to practice. So today as we celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment, as we celebrate the rebirth of the Buddha, we can also look at our own lives and see how those principles are at play in our lives. And particularly for today, how are we working along, how are we working to make sure that we are in every moment reborn spiritually? So just to say a little bit about what I mean by that, um, if we think of that system, if we think of spiritual death, Spiritual death is the letting go of the ego. It's the going beyond our self-clinging. I'm not going to say very much about that in conceptual terms. I don't, I, I don't really want to give a very conceptual talk today. My talks often are quite conceptual. And I often go into things like you know, conditioned co-production at great length and 
explain how Shunyata connects with the original and early teachings, etc., etc. But today I kind of think I want to do it slightly differently, if I may. So I'll probably say some things without explaining, but there are many, many ways you can follow those things up. So spiritual death is the going beyond our self-clinging. And in small ways, that's just looking at the habits that we have that hold us back in our spiritual progress. All those things where we tend to look inward in the sense of self-referential, not looking inward in the sense of reflection, which is obviously a major tool in moving away from that self-cherishing attitude. So again, they're funny words, aren't they? And it's not that we're not cherishing ourselves. Of course we are, but we cherish ourselves in such a way that we actually cherish ourselves as practitioners and see how as practitioners we can work against our habits that hold us back and that trap us into samsara. So as the Buddha did, the Buddha did that through many, many ways in his life. And then under the Bodhi tree, he had that experience of spiritual awakening. And I want to use that as a bit of a focus for the talk. I want us to rejoice in the Buddha's wisdom and compassion. And I want to exhort each and every one of us, including myself, to really take those into our hearts and to find ways of becoming more and more embodiments of that, the Buddha's wisdom and compassion. So I'm going to read you from the Sutta Nipata, and this is quite a long reading, and it's a very familiar one to many people. In fact, I realised, I discovered this morning that um, Paramartha talked about this last year. It's Pingia's praises of the way to the beyond, and apparently Paramartha gave a talk last year uh, about this this sutta so apologies if you've heard well no I don't apologize at all actually it's good to hear things more than once so I rejoice that you're hearing it again um, and also I believe you had it as a reading this morning great so that's good so let's uh, use this opportunity to listen to it and to really try and put ourselves into the place of Pingya. So Pingya was one of the disciples of the Buddha. He lived in the Buddha's times and he'd had the great good fortune of actually meeting the Buddha. But when we come into these songs of praises, he's very old. Some of the scriptures say he's 110. don't know if that can be taken literally, but he was obviously, again with capital letters, very old. So he was not in a position anymore to travel to be in the Buddha's company. But he's, he's telling a Brahmin called Bhavari about his connection with the Buddha. So I'm just going to read it. As I say, it is quite long, so probably best just to let it come in and just take the story in. I will sing you the praises of the way to the beyond, said Pingya, when he returned to where the Brahmin Bhavari lives on the banks of the river. It was described to us by this man exactly as he saw it. But then there isn't any reason why a man like him should lie. A mammoth of knowledge and completely pure. A man without desire. When a voice has none of the glibness of pride and none of the ingrained stains of ignorance, then its words are full of sweetness and beauty. It is such words that I praise now. They call him Buddha, enlightened, awake, dissolving darkness with total vision and knowing the world to its ends. He has gone beyond all the states of being and becoming 
He has no inner poison drives. He is the total elimination of suffering. This man, Brahmin Bhavari, is the man I follow. It is like a bird that leaves the bushes of the scrubland and flies to the fruit trees of the forest. I too have left the bleary half-light of opinions. Like a swan I have reached a great lake. Up till now, before I heard Gotama's teaching, people had always told me this. This is how it has always been and this is how it will always be. Only the constant refrain of tradition, a breeding ground for speculation. This prince, this beam of light, Gotama, was the only one who dissolved the darkness. This man, Gotama, is a universe of wisdom and a world of understanding. A teacher whose dharma is the way things are, instant, immediate and visible all around. Eroding desire without harmful side effects, with nothing else quite like it anywhere in the world. But Pingia said Bavari, why then don't you spend all your time, your every moment with this man Gotama, this universe of wisdom, this teacher whose dharma is the way things are? Brahman, sir, said Pingia, there is no moment for me, however small, that is spent away from Gautama, from this universe of wisdom, this world of understanding, this teacher whose teaching is the way things are. You see, sir, said Pingia, with constant and careful vigilance, it is possible for me to see him with my mind as clearly as with my eyes, in night as well as day. And since I spend my nights revering him, there is not, to my mind, a single moment spent away from him. I cannot now move away from the teaching of Gotama. The powers of confidence and joy, of intellect and awareness, hold me there. Whichever way this universe of wisdom goes, it draws me with it. Physically, I cannot move like that. My body is decaying. I am old and weak. But the driving power of purposeful thought propels me with it without break. There was a time when writhing in the mud of the swamps, I could only drift from one stone to the next. But then I saw the Sambuddha, fully awake and free from defilement. Then the Buddha spoke. Pingia, he said, other people have freed themselves by the power of confidence. You too should let that strength release you. You too will go to the further shore beyond the draw of death. These words, said Pingia, are the words of a man of wisdom. As I hear them, I become more confident. This man is Sam Buddha. He has opened the, car the curtains and woken up. There is nothing barren there. His mind is clear and luminous. There are no more questions for the doubtful who come to him. The teacher has answered them all. Yes, I shall go there. I shall go beyond change. I shall go beyond formations. I shall go beyond comparison. There are no more doubts. You may consider this as mind release.
think these are really beautiful verses. I love this story. I find it a story that just opens my heart in so many ways. It opens my heart to that more devotional sense. And it gives us insight into the Buddha's qualities. It gives us insight into what it was that moved Pingya so strongly when he met the Buddha. And it also gives us a sense of how Pingya learned to live in the Buddha's presence, even when the Buddha's physical presence was hundreds of miles away. So there are all sorts of lessons in that, of course, for us. I often think he gives us a very strong sense of discipleship gives us a very strong sense of what it means to really sit at the feet of the Buddha and to be the Buddha's sons and daughters. So I went to look at some of those qualities, but first I just went to take us into the story of the Enlightenment. I went to tell some episodes, some parts of the story along the way to the Enlightenment experience. And I went to do that through the filter of spiritual death. So that when we reach the Buddha's enlightenment and that rebirth is complete, we've seen some of the spiritual deaths that have happened along the way. And I'd like to connect that too with the term Jayanti, because the term Jayanti means victory. And in a way we could see each spiritual death as a victory. Each time we allow ourselves to die spiritually, each time we allow ourselves to go beyond our small narrow trapped sense of self we've you know it's a victorious moment and they're moments we should rejoice in write them in your diary tell people about them they're moments to share and each and every one of us have those moments we have them in very small ways and we probably have them in quite large ways as well so i went to see i went to have a look at some of the victories of the buddha in his way towards enlightenment, in his, as it were, his journey to sit under the, the Bodhi tree. So first of all, I want to just briefly remind us, going right back into the Buddha's life, of the four sights that he allegedly saw when he made the decision to leave the comfort of home and to lead the homeless life in search of spiritual awakening. So you'll recall the story where he's had a very sheltered life, he's had a very comfortable life. His father has done everything in his power to avoid the young Siddhartha coming up against anything unpleasant or anything that might um, affect him adversely. Hard to imagine how he did this, actually, just given how life is and the fact that people have a tendency to get sick and drop dead round about you. It's kind of hard to know how... Siddhartha's father managed but anyway the story goes that he didn't see these sights until one fine day when he rode out with his charioteer into the town in, into Kapilavastu and when he was out there he first of all saw a sick person he saw somebody who some of the, the descriptions are great if you're familiar with the, the light of Asia there's some fantastic descriptions in that of this palsied person that he sees writhing and you know and I don't know yet we haven't done this here maybe for a couple of years but often we act out the story of the Buddha's enlightenment and if we do it thoroughly enough with the foresights in it it's a great part to play the part of the sick person you know I recommend it strongly because you can really get into you know feeling what it's like to be writhing and you know all that 
The dead person's not such a good part. <laughs> Although sometimes hard to maintain. As you want to open your eyes to see what's happening around about you. But anyway, so the first sight that the Buddha saw was the sick person. And he suddenly thinks, my goodness, is this going to happen to me? He asks his charioteer, we're told, will this happen to me? And the charioteer says, fair chance it will. That, you know, people do get sick. And if you live to a ripe old age, it's more than likely that you will find your body starting to decay. So when I first started giving talks about, you know, WESAC, however many years ago, probably 30 years ago or something, I could say that in theory. I can now say it from the great voice of experience. We get old. Bits stop working quite so well. There's that great Leonard Cohen song that says, um, I'm aching in the places where I used to play. <laughs> it's such a good line. <laughs> so, um, you know, many of us in this room will know that. And for those of you that don't yet, don't worry, you will. So... So the Buddha sees this sick person and he has a sense of awakening. And then he sees a corpse. He sees somebody who's, who's died. No, sorry, first of all, he'd seen an old person. I forgot the old person. So he sees an old person, then he sees a sick person, then he sees a corpse. So these three things, he, he thinks, my goodness, is this going to happen to me? Now, as I say, it's hard to imagine that he'd reached whatever age he reached without having ever seen anybody dead or sick or old. But I suppose what that is saying is that sometimes these experiences suddenly come home to us. We can see things a hundred thousand times, and yet on the hundred thousand and first, something really gets into us. And sometimes it's because it's somebody closer to us. Sometimes it's because it's ourselves. Sometimes, we don't really know the reason sometimes, but for whatever reason, we suddenly have that awakening moment of, I'm going to get old, or I'm getting old, I could be sick. People that I love dearly will die and leave me, or I will die and leave them. So we have a bit of an awakening. Now, why I was thinking of this as a moment of possible spiritual death or rebirth is that when we have those moments of minor awakenings, when we suddenly are awake to the way things really are, to the facts of impermanence and the facts of suffering in the world, there are different choices we can make in those moments. We can either bury our head in the sand, we can go back to our old habitual ways of working, or we can really use that moment to open us up to something bigger. We can make those moments, uh, we can really take them into our heart and try to incorporate them in our understanding of life becoming a bigger person in a way as we do that. So I think for the Buddha, he chose very thoroughly and very clearly to move towards spiritual rebirth and to have an experience of spiritual death. And you know, sometimes I imagine myself directing the movie of the Buddha's life. And I kind of think at this point, I don't imagine it was an easy choice. I guess he didn't just kind of think, oh, old age suffering and death happens. Of course, he saw a fourth sight, as we remember. He saw someone who was leading a, a homeless life. He saw someone dressed as a, a wandering sadhu in saffron robes. And he saw a possibility of another way of living. But I kind of can't imagine that he just thought, OK, that's it, I'll go home and pack my bags and go. My, in my imagination, he struggled with that. He had a wife and son he loved. He had a family he had... It would seem a very good relationship with his father. And yet he made that decision to leave home, to move away, to go and seek the release from suffering. 
So at that moment, he chose to allow the old Siddhartha to die. The pampered prince was no more. He moved away from that. And he left home. And that that particular episode often raises an eyebrow or two that he left home. You know, and I think it's important we don't read Siddhartha's leaving of home through our own cultural understandings and through our own uh, 21st century morality, as it were. You know, that he was abandoning a helpless wife and child. Culturally, the situation would have been very different from that. But leaving that aside, it's also important to remember that his drive to do that was a drive of compassion. He saw suffering all around him and he looked at his wife and son and he saw that they too would suffer. He looked at his baby boy and he thought, this baby boy will experience dukkha. And that was part of his drive to leave home and to go to look for a release from suffering. So another spiritual death, the leaving of the family, the leaving of his, uh, his comfort in that sense and his security. Now these things we don't need to take literally. I'm not standing here suggesting that any of you abandon your baby children and go off into the forests. Some of you, you know, might be in a position where you can not abandon your baby boys, but you know, you can actually make moves of leaving things behind, of renouncing the things that tie us. But many of us aren't in that position. We work within that. We work within the conditions that we find ourselves. And we find a way within whatever conditions we are to let go of the old and to move towards the new, spiritually speaking. He also then, then he left home. He he wandered, he travelled, he practised. And he had many teachers. I'm giving a very (laughs) brief... rushed through here, but he had two main teachers that he worked with and that he studied under and practiced under. And under those teachers, he went a very, very long way. But he came to a point where he felt he couldn't actually go any further in that path. He even wondered if he was following the wrong path. He wondered if he was making great progress in the wrong direction, which is quite a thing to realize. You know, it's a bit like you're going to Liverpool and you discover you're on the train to Manchester or something like that, you know, in a very minor way. You're actually never going to get to Liverpool as long as you stay on the train to Manchester. You're going to have to make a change and somehow get on the right train. So he realised that and he was willing to leave these teachers. Now, we get the impression he had great respect and love even for these teachers. So once again, when I'm imagining directing the movie... I don't imagine it was a completely easy decision. It was probably a clear decision because he was so focused and so clear. But nevertheless, he was a human being with feelings. And presumably he had to really work to decide whether this was the best thing and then to make the move when he he saw that. And again, I think there's a spiritual death in this because there's the realisation that we're on the wrong track is quite quite a thing to realize and to be willing to acknowledge and he had some standing as a a great disciple of these teachers he was probably well known at least in the area that they taught in he was probably quite revered as one of their major disciples and uh, pupils and so to actually say no this isn't the right journey must have been a spiritual death there must have been a letting go of something in the desire to move towards a true awakening. And then he practiced many asceticisms. 
And again, in the sutras and the in the Pali Canon, there's some great descriptions of them, which I won't amuse you with them here because time's short. But I recommend them. Actually, if you haven't read um, Vishvapani's book on Gotama the Buddha, I really recommend it. It's a very good book on the historical Buddha, and he does. You get a real sense of what the culture was like at the time that the Buddha was practicing or that Siddhartha was practicing. You get a real sense of the kind of ferment of ideas and practices and, you know, the great spirit, mind and body sort of festival that was India at the time. So he did these ascetic practices, but once again he came to a realization that this was not the way to go. Sangharachta talks quite a bit about this in various places and he's quite funny on the subject. He says... For example, most of us don't have to worry about following the Buddha's example. Most of us do not practice asceticisms in such a way that we are damaging ourselves in the sense that the Buddha physically damaged himself. Most of our sense of renunciation is on a minor scale rather than on a major scale. Anyway, he's quite, I, think, I find him quite amusing on that topic. But he also says one of the things about the Buddha's realization in this was that he realized he was practicing with willpower and ego. So in the very search to let go of ego, the Buddha was using his ego and clinging in a way, really sort of willing himself to, to practice. And the Buddha tells us that he was inclined, he, the Buddha, was inclined to Mentally hold down my mind with my mind, crush it and overwhelm it. So, interestingly, if we go back to this system of training and practice that Sangharach has given us as principles of a spiritual life, it strikes me that he was aiming for spiritual death without much of the earlier stages, at least in those practices. That those practices at that time for him were not practices of integration or positive emotion, but they were driven by will. Now, personally, I greatly admire the will in that. I think we can use willpower. You know, I don't think we need to worry about having too much will. But somewhere Sangharachita talks very beautifully about using our will to surrender the will, <laughs> to actually allow ourselves to surrender. And personally, I've thought a lot about what is the difference between self-will and surrender. And what's the difference between being passive in a way or really truly surrendering to something bigger than ourselves, to something beyond ourselves? And in Pingya's verses, we get that sense that he's able to surrender. He's met something so much bigger than himself and he's actually able to allow himself to let go and to surrender. So at the point where Siddhartha's still working very hard with willpower, that this is a moment where he comes to a sense of breakthrough. And again, there's a true spiritual death there where he realizes that no matter how far he's gone down this road, he's willing to come back, step back from the brink when he realizes he's not following a path that's really going to allow him to open up to a genuine spiritual rebirth. So he lets go of that. He stops working from will. He stops working from ego. And the next thing that happens is that he decides to take some food. He decides to take some rice milk. Not very substantial food, but he decides to take some food. So in a way here, he's abandoning something there as well, isn't he? He's willing to let go of something. And I guess it's pride, perhaps. 
Or maybe as we maybe I'm reading into that that there's a pride sometimes in our practice, a pride in how we practice. And when we realise that maybe we're not practising as wholeheartedly or as skillfully as we could be, sometimes it's hard to actually step back from that. And of course, what happens when he decides to take the food is that he gets abandoned by his five peers or his five disciples. In a way, it's hard to tell whether they saw themselves as peers or disciples. But the five ascetics alongside whom he was practicing get completely disillusioned with him because he's taking food again and they just decide to abandon him. So again, we have something there where he was, he was revered, he had a group of followers, he had those five, but he might well have had others. You know, he was in a position of some importance and yet he was able to recognise that this was not the path to enlightenment, to awakening, and he was able to let go. He had the memory, you might recall, of sitting as a child under the rose apple tree, where he'd entered into a deeply concentrated and open state of mind, and he decided that that's what he needed to seek. So he sat under the tree, and the rest is history. And it's why we're here today. So there's some of the victories that the Buddha did. And the reason why I wanted to pull them out today is just to think, well, that okay, maybe we aren't going to be faced by um, such ascetic practices. Maybe we don't have disciples who will abandon us if we decide to work slightly differently from how we've been doing. But I'm sure all of us have things in our practice and in our life where we cling to them. We cling to the form. We cling to perhaps a minor understanding of something, when really we need to let go of that and allow a new understanding to, to come through. And then right at the threshold of enlightenment, so we have Siddhartha sitting under the branches, the spreading branches of the pipal tree. We have him sitting there on the threshold of enlightenment, but the story isn't over yet. We have yet another figure who appears, and that's the figure of Mara. And again, we can take all of these episodes as literal or we can take them as symbolic. And Mara is a great symbol. Mara is a wonderful symbol. And Mara appears and he tries to persuade the Buddha to be almost the almost Buddha to get up and walk away. He says to him, you know, you're making a mistake. He tries everything. He, he threatens him. He brings his armies to fight against him. Again, this is glorious technicolor in the movie. And, you know, he brings the armies in and the Buddha stays there, he sits there, he stays centred, he stays concentrated, he keeps an open heart. We're told that the arrows that come to him turn to flowers as they fall upon him. I've always thought you could have a great game called Mara's Arras in which you could, anyway, you could <laughs> gain points for turning arrows into flowers but in a more serious sense it is something that we can do it's another sense of being able to really look at our spiritual life and see victory take victory where we can and um oops so i'm just going into spanish keyboard which okay um so yes, yeah, so he's on the, th the threshold of enlightenment, Mara appears. He also tries to seduce him by sending his beautiful daughters, which again can be quite a fun part in the play, <laughs> trying you know, to 
get the Buddha away from the tree. And all sorts of things happen, but the Buddha just remains there. And also Mara challenges him. He says, who are you? You know, Who can you call upon to witness your right to sit in this sacred space, this sacred place? And the Buddha touches the earth and the earth goddess, we're told, appears and says, I will witness, the earth will witness that this being has practiced for aeons to come to this point. And yes, this being is awake. So even at that moment on the threshold of enlightenment, there's a victory, there's a spiritual death, a true spiritual death, because Mara in a way represents everything that the Buddha could move back to. He represents everything that the Buddha could go back to a life of comfort, go back to you know whatever those things are that he's left behind. He could go back to being a famous ascetic. He could go back to his life in the palace. And yet at that moment, he is absolutely clear and an awakening happens. A Buddha is born. So, as I say, I'm not going to actually say very much about what that experience is because we're told it was an experience. So later on, that experience is conceptualized. It's given many formula. It's also given many symbols. It's given all sorts of ways of of understanding it. And as Buddhism, as the great river of Buddhism, as it were, has flown, flowed, flowed through the world, historically and geographically, that river has taken many, many different forms, but their source is in that experience. So however it's conceptualized, however it's explained, it goes back to that moment under the Bodhi tree where the Buddha had the experience of awakening where he saw through the things that trapped him. He saw through suffering. And he later did teach that. But at the moment, I just want us to stay with that experience. So I want to go back to Pingia and look at a couple of the things that he says in his verses of praise. So that we can get a bit of a fuller sense of the Buddha, of that figure that has arisen, as it were, under the Bodhi tree in that moment. So Pingia says, When a voice has none of the glibness of pride and none of the ingrained stains of ignorance, then its words are full of sweetness and beauty. And I love that phrase, the glibness of pride. You know, as as a spiritual poison, pride is so seductive. It's so... I wonder sometimes if pride is one of the the um, major kind of downfalls in the spiritual life because sometimes as we practice we get to be much better at things you know we can sometimes some of us have come to Buddhism in quite a state I came to Buddhism probably in the verge of a nervous breakdown many many years ago many of us come to Buddhism because we're unsatisfied we're dissatisfied because we've seen that life isn't going to give us what we're looking for we might have been successful but that success seemed empty we might not have been successful and we might be resentful about the fact that we weren't successful but however we come to it often our very practice gets us into a place where we could just go back into the world and be much more successful a Buddhist practice can sometimes bolster up our ego rather than being the thing that actually allows us to see through and go beyond the ego. I can certainly feel I've had that experience myself over the years of, of using my kind of practice to shore up something of my identity 
rather than it being something that challenges any sense of identity. So the glibness of pride, I really like that phrase. And again, there's a spiritual death there. And I think it's often pride that stops us from being able to spiritually die. That pride that makes us hold on to the things that are familiar and the things that have been successful in a certain way. So maybe that's just something we can look out for in our own practice. Pingya goes on to say, They call him Buddha, enlightened, awake, dissolving darkness with total vision and knowing the world to its ends. He has gone beyond all the states of being and becoming. He has no inner poison drive. He is the total elimination of suffering. So the Buddha has gone beyond the inner poison drives. Traditionally, greed, hatred and delusion and all the many ramifications. The Buddha has seen that they are the cause of suffering. He has broken through that and has totally eliminated suffering. We sometimes hear that the Buddha leaves no traces or leaves no tracks. That's what's meant by this. He creates no future suffering. So we too can look at how to create at least less future suffering for ourselves and for others by looking at those poison drives. These are things we can take to our heart in our own practice. And Pingia talking about himself, he says, I too have left the bleary half-light of opinions. It's another great expression, the bleary half-light of opinions. You know, how much of what we consider knowledge is just opinions? You know, and often opinions have their place. We have to know what we think about something. I'm not suggesting we suddenly become brainless. But discernment, knowing when an opinion is but an opinion, and where does that opinion come from? You know, where is it that these deeply held things that we think of as beliefs actually come from? What are the views that are underlying the things that we hold dearly? Um, And I just, again, that little phrase, bleary half-light, because opinions, they don't really bring us into the light of day. They keep us in the bleary half-light. Pingia goes on to say, people had always told me this. This is how it's always been. This is how it always will be. The constant refrain of tradition, a breeding ground for speculation. So again, the refrain of tradition, a breeding ground for speculation. So speculation, you know, when we, we kind of, um, we think we know why something is, but often it's only conditioning. You know, so there's a real opportunity to look at our own conditioning and see what it is that makes us do the things that we do. If I could tell a really silly story here, I will um, finish soon. But a really silly story, right? There's, there's a woman who, when she cooks a ham, she's obviously not part of the tree rat in the community because she's cooking a ham. So anyway, she puts her ham, when she's putting it in the oven, she cuts the top off, a gammon, you know, one of these rain things. She's putting it in the oven, she cuts the top off, and a friend says to her, why do you do that? And she said, oh, I don't really know. I've always done it. It's how... It's just how you cook a ham, isn't it? Friends, well, I've never cooked a ham like that. She said, oh, I don't know. It's how my mother taught me to cook a ham. So the next time she sees her mother, she says to her, why do, you, why do we cut the top of the ham? And her mother says, I don't know. It's just how you cook a ham, isn't it? 
you know, it's how you, just how you do it. It's how my mother always did it. So the next time the girl sees her granny, she says to her, why do we cook hams? Why do you cut the top of a ham? She said, oh, well, when I first got married, we only had a very small oven and it wouldn't fit in, so we had to cut the top off. So it's a silly story, but actually quite often we just pick things up, don't we? This is how it is. This is how it should be done. And we don't really know why or where that comes from. Now, cooking a ham's a silly example, and it's probably one that none of us are going to be doing in the immediate future. But, you know, as a symbol of something, how often do we think, that's just how you do it. That's just how it's done. So, again, when we hear ourselves saying that, it's really important to look at where that conditioning comes from. And another little phrase that Pingia uses, he says, I cannot now move away from the teaching of Gotama. And this is the bit. The powers of confidence and joy of intellect and awareness hold me there. So his, exam, his, his coming into relationship with the Buddha has given him confidence and joy. And really our practice ought to open our hearts to confidence and joy. Pingia ends by saying there are no more questions for the doubtful. Yes, I shall go there. I shall go beyond change. I shall go beyond formations. I shall go beyond comparison. You may consider this as mind released. So Pingi is not only praising the Buddha. He's not only seeing the Buddha as an object of devotion. He's seeing the Buddha as an object of emulation. He's seeing the Buddha as something that he too can aspire to. Like the verse in our own threefold puja, one of our devotional practices where we say, what the Buddha overcame, we too can overcome. What the Buddha attained, we too can attain. So Pingia too has gone beyond formations. He's broken through everything that kept him trapped to samsara. He too has died spiritually. The old Pingia has died. His mind is released. Again, a beautiful image of the mind released. And then, of course, there's the lovely part where when he's asked, why aren't you always with your teacher then? And he says, there is no moment when I'm not with him. I'm with him all the time. And again, that's something that we can really take on board. And today of all days, we can take the opportunity to imagine ourselves in the presence of the Buddha. And I believe you did that this morning in the meditation And it's something we can do meditatively whenever we meditate, whatever practice we're doing, we can imagine ourselves doing it in the presence of the Buddha. But we can also do it in our life. We can do it in things like, for example, when we have to make ethical decisions. We can imagine ourselves in the presence of the Buddha and we can think to ourselves, what would the Buddha do in this situation? You know, what would the principle be? How can I open my heart in wisdom and compassion in this situation? So today we not only celebrate the Buddha's rebirth, the Buddha's spiritual rebirth, his awakening, but we also take the opportunity in our heart of hearts to commit ourselves to our own awakening, to find whatever path, whatever practices, whatever is going to help us to spiritually die, to let go, to stop holding on to those small ego moments that trap us into samsara, but to really look for mind release, for heart release. Today's an opportunity to remember that. And I'd like to end with an image from the Pali Canon. 
Pingya talks of dispelling the darkness. He talks about the Buddha as a figure who dispels the darkness. So I'd like to end with a very traditional reading which talks about the Buddha. It's a simile of the sun and the moon. So just remember this is a super sun and a super moon. So, so this is from the, um, one of the Nikayas. I think it's the Samyutta Nikaya. So long, brethren, as moon and sun have not arisen in the world, just so long is there no shining forth of great light, no shining forth of great radiance. But gross darkness, the darkness of bewilderment prevails. Neither night nor day is distinguishable, nor the month nor the half-month, nor the seasons of the year are to be discerned. But... When moon and sun arise in the world, then is the shining forth of great light, of great radiance, and gross darkness, the darkness of bewilderment, is no more. Then are distinguished the night and the day. Then are distinguished the month and the half-month and the seasons of the year. Just so, brethren, so long as a Tathagata arises not, a Buddha supreme, there is no shining forth of great light or great radiance. But gross darkness, the darkness of bewilderment prevails. There is no proclamation, no teaching, no setting up, no making plain of the four Aryan truths. But brethren, so soon as a Tathagata, a Buddha arises, all these things take place. And then there is a proclaiming, a teaching, a showing forth, a setting up, a making plain of the four Aryan truths. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 